Hello and welcome to this Endo Life episode 45. I'm Jessica Duffin and this podcast is all about living and thriving with endometriosis. This episode is sponsored by my friends at BU. Guys, I've got some really exciting news. BU have brought out a CBD range. I know so many of us in here in the UK have struggled to get our hands on good quality CBD, especially because there's really vague regulations here and I just personally feel like I don't really know who to trust and I feel that so many of the CBD products are a hundred pounds plus and I don't really want to invest in a company or a product that is that expensive without knowing if it you know what what kind of quality it is but BU are striving to provide the highest quality CBD products on the market they have pharmaceutical pharmaceutical background which means they have the science and knowledge to ensure that they're able to make the best and purest CBD products available and I've spoken to them about this and they are super passionate and feel really strongly about making sure that they are um, providing yeah just the highest quality highest quality products possible you can get your hands on a CBD muscle balm which I've been using for my period and Chris has been using on his tight shoulders an oral spray and oral drops to shop just head to link in my show notes This episode is also sponsored by my free endometriosis symptom tracker. If you feel like you're in pain all the time or you're tired all the time and you just can't tell what's making your endo better or worse, which is what I'm currently dealing with with my interstitial cystitis, I can never say that word, then this tracker could help you begin to understand subtle patterns in your endometriosis symptoms. By using this tracker every day, charting your mood, pain, brain fog and other symptoms and noting down what you eat, your stress levels and lifestyle habits, you'll begin to understand the crucial relationship between your body, your life and endometriosis. Understanding this is key to making changes that actually work and have a positive effect. As always, this guide doesn't replace your medical treatment and it's not intended to treat or cure endometriosis, but it provides you with a tool that I use personally to help me live well with endometriosis and work out what was helping me and wasn't helping me. To download, just head to the show notes and follow the link to get your free copy. So you guys have been waiting for this one and I'm really sorry it's taken so long, but I wanted to find the best person I could to discuss this really important but quite difficult subject. And I, no one's really come up on my radar and it's been quite hard to find someone who would fit the bill. We have talked about sex quite a lot on the podcast, but we haven't really kind of dived into relationships. So I was super happy to discover Melanie Cox. Mel Cox is the founder of Emotional Wellbeing Centre HQ Therapy Rooms in East London in Hackney. She is also a tension and trauma release exercise practitioner and a humanistic psychotherapist and we kind of get into what that means and the difference of that uh, difference between different kind of therapists in the um, interview. Mel regularly supports couples with communication struggles, kind of ranging from conflict to intimacy problems. And what I found was really interesting was also that she deals, she talks to couples about the impact of depression and anxiety on relationships. Her work focuses both on like the physical and the cognitive aspects of well-being. And she takes an approach that treats the whole person. So she takes a very, uh, I guess, humanistic approach. And, you know, I'm sure that the tension and trauma release exercise knowledge that she has gained has really helped her to take this whole person approach and look at the way that 
mental health and emotional well-being affects the physical body as well. Many of us with endometriosis within our romantic relationships struggle. We might want to start dating, but we don't know how to tell the people that we meet or perhaps like we're in a long-term relationship um, and the strains are kind of starting to show or maybe we've lost relationships due to endo. All of us are kind of on different spectrums. You might not even be in a relationship. Maybe you just want to have a lot of sex and you don't know how to tell the people that you are meeting that you have pain with sex or, you know, all of these different things or it comes up in conversation. So although we don't address every single aspect of relationships and dating, this is more, this is is heavier on the relationship side of things. We do discuss communication, communication and, you know, just how to have discussions about pain during sex, daily pain, chronic fatigue, mental health, and all of these things can cause tension between people and it's quite difficult to know how to communicate effectively in the face of those kind of tensions and strains. So in this episode I talked to Mel about effective communication methods between either couples or kind of future partners or people we're dating, how partners can support someone living with endometriosis and something that I personally felt was really important understanding what makes a healthy relationship and that might sound a bit random but the reason why I've wanted to talk to Mel about that and I mean I say this in the interview is that I've heard sadly people put up with abuse and I've put up with abuse and not being in a healthy relationship not necessarily an abusive one but not being in a healthy one because we don't have the energy or the strength to deal with it or we don't know any better because that's what we've grown up with And so we're in an unhealthy relationship and that's making our endometriosis worse. So I really wanted to kind of discuss what does a healthy relationship look like and what should healthy communication look like and how are you guys both supposed to interact in a relationship where there's a chronic disease present. I really hope this one is helpful for you guys. And I think and I hope that it should be helpful for your partners too, if they are interested in listening. So let me know what you think. I'd love to hear like, please leave me a review or send me a DM or an email and tell me what you, you know, what you enjoyed about this episode. And if I've missed any important questions, please send them to me because I'm hoping to have um, future relationship experts on. So yeah, enjoy. You are the founder um, of HQ Therapy and um, a psychotherapist. And I feel that there's a lot of misconceptions around therapy. Could you tell us about what it is that you specifically do and maybe kind of an overview of the different types of therapists available as well as the work that you do with couples well so the the um types of available therapies um and counseling is just so vast these days it is it's expanding isn't it it's it's expanding yeah oh different modalities seem to be um created annually <laughs> so um but um i guess i view uh, the kind of therapies that are out there in three rough categories. There, there are new categories all the time as well. But essentially, when you're talking about psychotherapy, we've got sort of behavioral work, um, psychoanalytical work, and relational work. Um, behavioral work falls into the category like CBT um, and uh, working with addressing people's behavior. Um, as is kind of given away by the name. 
Um, psychoanalytical work, psychoanalytical work is more about um, the uh, therapist trying to stay as blank and neutral as possible, giving the client the opportunity to work through things in a very clean environment, so uninfluenced by the therapist as, as much as possible. Um, and humanistic or relational psychotherapy is more about the therapy room being a microcosm of the world. So in that small room, you get a chance to practice and experience what it's like to be in relationship and learn skills that you can then take out and apply to the um, larger world. Uh, developments over the years, you know, when those sort of different modalities were in more strict categories, sort of in the 1960s, um, it, there's been more bleed between them. Um, in a modern view of psychotherapy, most psychotherapies integrate various modalities from all of those different strands, some behavioral, some uh, psychodynamic work in particular. Uh, primarily transference is a very useful field uh, or therapeutic approach that most therapists will understand and be able to use in their therapeutic work. But relational work has... Uh, um, very much part of all three categories these days. Most people um, believe that the relationship between the client and the therapist is quite important, and the nature of that will depend on the therapist and the client and what that therapist um, or what that client was, is attracted to. So some people will be attracted much more to people who are very neutral and uninterfering. Some people want just to work in a very practical way, which maybe be more the behavioral type of therapy. And then some people are very much about wanting to have a relationship and wanting that to be as normal, in quotes, um, as possible. Um, they don't want to sit in a room where there was somebody who doesn't speak at all. They find that a bit disconcerting. Yeah. But that other people find that really uh, um, empowering, having this amount of autonomy. So what approach do you, kind of what modes, what do you use? I'm trained in humanistic-based uh, psychotherapy, so a whole range of them from art therapy to body work um, to formative psychology, so a whole range of therapeutic approaches, but they all fall under this umbrella of humanistic or relational therapy, very much about working with the person um, in being in relationship with that person. Mm. Well, yeah, that's a, that's a lot that you do. And I think that I personally resonate with that kind of, that kind of therapy because I've had the more, I can't remember what you called it now, but I've, I've had therapists who don't kind of say much or respond. And I wasn't mm. really sure where to go with my conversation, you know, with what I was saying and, I think I needed a little bit more back from them personally. Yeah. And I think generally in the modern world, that's more, more people are, you know, because we have so much engagement and interaction with people through social media nowadays, but even before that, um, people are very uncomfortable with this idea that the therapist doesn't speak at all. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Not that this is it's not that it's wrong. Um, you know, I understand the approach and um, it can be very effective. But because we're so used to having much more contact with each other, I suppose, however superficial that might be, um, when someone's totally silent, it can be very disconcerting and it can trigger a lot of maybe abandonment issues and that can be overwhelming for people. Mm. Uh, and they'd rather something that was maybe led them in a bit more gently. Yeah. 
So what's the, like, do you work specifically with couples or do you work with individuals as well? Yeah, I work with couples and individuals and uh, with uh, adolescents as well. And when it comes to couples, obviously, as you know, I'm really interested in, um, we've, we've had guests come on talking specifically about sex, um, but we haven't really had anyone come on yet to talk about how to deal with conflict or communication breakdown etc and I know that listeners are really interested to hear more so what what kind of issues do you deal with with couples in therapy I think the first thing to say about conflict is um, culturally we're told we shouldn't have any (laughs) if you're in a good relationship there will be no conflict everything will be fantastic Uh, Whereas, in fact, conflict is a normal part of life. We've got two in a relationship, uh, whether that's a a couple's relationship or any relationship, you've got two very different people often with very complex histories coming together. Um, We often have a lot in common, uh, and that helps those relationships begin. But invariably, we're going to brush up to a greater or lesser extent with things that we don't have in common or things that clash with each other. And so to be told this fairy tale story that um, when we fight the right person, uh, we're going to live happily ever after and there'll never be any problems, is actually um, such a disservice to relationships. It it puts the relationship uh, in this uh, arena where it can't possibly um, meet those expectations. And then often people think the relationship's wrong rather than, you know, the idea that the relationship should be perfect is wrong. Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. Do you find that that's what couples come to you with this idea that they shouldn't they shouldn't have conflict? Um, I think that um, that's an idea that we address, but usually people come and they say, "Oh, we have we have a problem and we don't know how to work it out," and they want to stay in the relationship. They they are um, or they don't understand to what extent the problem in the relationship means the relationship should end or continue. Um, so that's often the starting point is like, we have this big problem. We want to work it out, but we feel that the problem is so big. We're not sure if it can be worked out. Um, and usually if people are willing, most problems can be worked out. My general standpoint with people is if you're dealing with a deep core issue, um, this isn't going to be the only place that this issue comes up. It'll come up in other relationships. And surely if you give this relationship up, I'm going to see you again once this relationship raises, this issue really, uh, uh, raises up in your next relationship. So, um, even if a, a couple decide they're not going to stay together, looking at the, uh, detail of the issue that's being brought up is really important. Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. And do you find, so this is, this is something that I find has come up quite a few times in my work at Endometriosis UK, um, but also as this endo life, um, that one person in the couple, and in this case, it, it will be the, usually the person with endometriosis will want to seek some kind of support and the partner has a reluctance to do that and might have some hesitations around therapy or just opening up to a stranger do you see that often and is there is there a way to manage that well I suppose I see people at the point when they've and they uh, have decided that it's a good idea 
um, mm-hmm. or that they're at least going to come along and uh, and try it out. Um, so if a partner is that resistant, um, yeah, I mean, it's, 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 it's going to be a case-by-case basis. Um, it would be slightly different, but I'm trying to think about this in more general terms to give a more general answer to that question. If someone doesn't want to come along, they're usually they're going to be frightened. <clears throat> they're going to be frightened of being vulnerable. They're going to be frightened of having to change. Um, they're going to be frightened of being criticized. Um, they're going to be frightened of losing uh, a sense of empowerment or control. So if someone's reluctant to come to therapy gently, empathically, looking at those things would maybe the way, the way that it could shift. But of course, you often need a therapist to help do work in that way. Yeah. <laughs> it's a kind of a catch when you do. Do you think that someone could start by going alone um, to talk about the issues that they're facing? Absolutely. And then maybe the other, the partner would be influenced later on down the line by seeing the kind of the way that that person has changed. Absolutely. So what ha- what we say is like, uh, we're working with systems and everyone's connected. So you, uh, change one, uh, aspect of the mobile and everything else has to adjust to climatize to that. Yes. So if one person gets support, um, you know, so let's take the two options in that approach. One person, the person with endometriosis goes to therapy and they say, I'm struggling with all this, then they can get help and support for themselves. So that's a good starting point. They might feel more stable and they might go back to their relationship feeling less demanding of their partner and that might shift everything in itself. Then they might start feeling that they're getting their needs met by the partner just because of the change that they made. Of They may be somebody who has an expectation that their partner is going to fix it. Um, whereas there may be a limited amount that their partner can do and they might not be seeing that their partner is doing their utmost because they're in pain and and that can be very dominating in somebody's psyche. It can, it can be very difficult. You, it definitely distorts your view and your feelings. It's, uh, yeah, so um, if you can get some professional help and see, feel seen and heard in that environment... Uh, it could change how you then engage with your partner and other people outside. Another scenario might be that the person with endometriosis goes to get some support um, and they find out through that that actually they haven't held high enough standards for themselves, that they've sought somebody who can't meet them, who doesn't want to meet them, who's not participating in the relationship in a full and healthy way. And then they may decide at that point that, well, if this person can't, uh, can't come along with me on this journey, they, that I'm not getting my needs met in this relationship, then maybe this relationship isn't right for me. And there are many other permutations of this. I'm kind of giving a couple general examples. But um, on the whole, I would see if someone has to go to therapy on their own, yeah, it's either because they've got a distorted view of their partner and that can be resolved just by themselves getting help, or it may be that that partner isn't an adequate partner for them. And I, I would really like to kind of dive deeper into this, you know, idea of conflict, because I think, and, and communica- communication breakdown, because over the years I've had people come to me and say, when we try to talk about the strains that endometriosis put on our relationship, we end up arguing or mm-hmm. we don't talk at all. 
and that person feels isolated and they they already feel isolated because they're living with a disease that kind of makes them feel separate from society in many ways so of course this is going <laughs> to this is going to vary from having a one-on-one conversation with you in a therapy session but on a more general level how can couples begin improving their communication methods if they are feeling that strain from endometriosis um so that's really quite a big question and it um absolutely depends on what each individual uh a couple you know is going on in their their relationship their situation however broadly speaking um there are lots of different communication skills that i would implement in a couple session one is called daily temperature reading or dtr um, other people probably have different names for a similar sort of exercise, but it's an opportunity to structure a conversation so that you uh, first are introducing subjects that you might not automatically bring up, um, and that can either you know. So, so the, the structure of a DTR would be saying something positive and affirmation to each other. It would be providing new information followed by a curiosity or a puzzle you'd have of the other. Uh, then it would be a structure called complaints with recommendations. Uh, and again, that has to be handled well, I think, in order for it to be constructive in the long term. The last part of the DTR is the uh, hopes, wish, and dreams element. So basically what you have is a structure of communication that's bookended by uh, positivity uh, to, to help contain maybe more difficult things that might be exchanged in the middle. Um, but of course we need to communicate all these things in relationships. And, uh, sometimes people find that really helpful to have a structure to do that. Um, another way that I might encourage people to talk is by giving each other 10 minutes each. And of course you can choose the length of time, but a, a 10 minute period, for example, of uninterrupted talk. So one person goes first they can talk for 10 minutes the other person doesn't have to fix doesn't have to remark doesn't have to soothe they just say i hear you in response to that person talking and then the uh the the other person takes a turn and again they have 10 minutes or however long you decide um to uh, say anything and everything that they want to say uninterrupted uh, and uncommented on uh, and although that maybe sound like sounds like quite a sterile environment to exchange information, it can be so helpful for one person just to have the floor uninterrupted, but also for the other person and the listener not to have to fix anything, not to have to ha- uh, comment on anything. It can be a great release just to to listen to someone without having any pressure on you to um, to comment. And what would so if you did something if you did the ten minutes. Say that someone did 10 minutes and they said something about what it was like for them to, I don't know, deal with their partner living with endo. And the other, like, once they've both had that 10 minute space, what would happen if that person still wants to respond? So they want to say, like, you know, I understand, but I am dealing with X, Y, Z. Would you walk, would you end the conversation at those 10, that 10 minute exchange? Or would you then do, would there then be space for feedback? Well, it depends on how sophisticated the couple is. But if this is early stages of someone learning how to communicate and uh, work with conflict, we uh, I would ask my couple not to comment on anything said in that subject, in that particular place, to keep to keep that um, that exchange and that kind of communication tool safe 
you don't want to, to to talk to open up to somebody in that 10 minutes and then be attacked an hour later for it. Yes. So yeah, it's, 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 it's the idea is that you leave it at least 24 hours before uh, maybe bringing up anything that was particularly sensitive in that exchange. Um, so that you've got time to to let it settle, uh, to not be reactive. Um, and again, you know, depending on how sophisticated the the people are involved in this exchange, you know, some people may be able to handle it better a few hours later. And certainly that's the idea is that once we get good at this, at understanding ourselves better, at managing these things in a constructive way, then you can bring them up maybe more readily or sooner. But if it's, yeah, we want to give the other person space to be able to say what they need to say without maybe really at any point feeling attacked for it. Um, uh, I was going to say something else about that. Um, and uh, that is, you know, there are lots of other skills that we would incorporate into these exercises and uh, staying with I statements, talking um, about yourself is another important aspect of doing these exercises. So you wouldn't sit there and uh, we wouldn't encourage somebody to sit there and for 10 minutes say, you do this, you do that, you do this. We would say that if you're going to use this 10 minutes, you talk about yourself and you, you say, I, I feel this, I am this, my day was like this, I'm noticing this about my life or this about our situation. You don't say you've done this or you made me feel. We, we try to, you know, again, a good communication skill if you're dealing with conflict is to stay away from any accusatory statements like you should do, should and made. Those kind of words are, uh, can be quite stimulating. Yeah. Of course. For another person to hear. If um if a couple didn't feel they were quite ready for therapy, but they they did feel like they wanted to work more on their communication, are there any helpful and accessible books or any other resources that you would recommend to begin this journey? Absolutely. Um so one of my favorite uh relationship relationship couple uh therapists are Julie and John Gottman. Um, and they have uh, got lots of books out um, on relationships and how uh, to communicate. They have a website um, that will send you regular, I think they're called marriage, marriage minutes. So every twice a week, I think they'll send you out tips on relationships or communication or topics in relationships or anywhere from between, you know, it could even be, you know, about pain potentially. Um, uh, so their organization is called the Gottman Institute. And, um, so highly, highly recommend anything by them. They're so lovely and they just approach it in this very human kind way. Just a reminder that today's episode is sponsored by BU. BU have just released their own CBD muscle balm. It smells really soothing, like a sort of like a beeswax candle. It does have beeswax in it, so you can kind of faintly smell that. And I love the smell of beeswax candles. Um, it's a really lovely texture. It's not too oily or sticky, so you don't have to worry about it getting on your clothes or um, kind of your clothes sticking to you. That's always kind of annoyed me in the past with other balms that I've used. Um, and to top it off, it's totally natural and made simply with organic coconut oil, organic beeswax, organic argan oil, organic rosehip oil, organic geranium oil, eucalyptus essential oil, lavender essential oil, and cannabinoid rich hemp extract with 300 milligrams of CBD. 
If you'd like to check out their CBD range, head to the link in my show notes and let me know if you try. I'd love to hear. This episode is also sponsored by my free endometriosis symptom tracker. If you kind of feel a bit overwhelmed by your pain and your symptoms and you really just don't know where to start with managing them, then tracking your symptoms over a couple of months or even just a month to see what your triggers might be could be really helpful. I've put together a free download that helps you track your pain, your mood, your brain fog, uh, your bloating, where you are in your cycle, your eating habits, your stress levels, so many different things um, in a really simple and effective way. If you'd like to try it out, um, obviously it's free, just head to the show notes, follow the link and you can get your own copy. I know that you work um, quite a lot with people experiencing depression and anxiety and many people with endometriosis often experience depression and anxiety both as kind of a symptom and a side effect of living with chronic pain or even if they don't have chronic pain just the the many symptoms that come with endometriosis can can cause anxiety and depression Mm. of course this can sometimes put a strain on a relationship in various ways and I often have conversations with people where they say that their partner feels angry um, and resentful about the space that that person is in mentally or they feel helpless and unsure what to do and how to help them and I mean those are two very kind of blanket statements that there's lots in the middle but um, if we were looking at both of those kind of scenarios how how do you work with couples facing those kind of challenges if someone is uh, one of the couple is living with anxiety and depression and it's you know pressurizing that relationship in some kind of way well the first thing i'd like to say about that subject is that we tend to i mean it's a lovely expression in therapy you know we find what we need um and we tend to attract exactly the sort of work that we need to do so my guess would be in the majority of cases somebody uh, who is drawn to somebody with endometriosis without knowing that they have an illness, they will potentially be drawn to someone like that. And the reason for that is because somewhere in their history, they would have had somebody who has suffered pain, who has suffered depression, anxiety, and they will be drawn to this relationship to try and resolve the very issue that they had to tolerate as a youngster growing up so interesting so interesting um it's a nine times out of ten i would say <clears throat> that would be the case if not 10 out of 10 and uh yeah i'm quite um opinionated in this particular area that's fine <laughs> feel free to share the opinions <laughs> yeah <laughs> so so i would say that that partner drawn to somebody with endometriosis um has um has experienced that sort of uh, environment before. And so it'd be very interesting for that person to look at what their history was and get some help and support around that and um, start talking about the experience they have with their partner from the perspective of their past rather than of the present. So when depressed, it reminds me of my mom being depressed. And when she would shut herself in her room and sleep for days on end, um, what's being triggered in me when you feel depressed is I feel abandoned, uh, and I feel neglected. And, um, I really want to attack you when, when you're, you you feel like this. So that would be the way that I would encourage a partner who's 
you know, dealing with somebody in pain and who maybe withdrew in response to that pain. But as I say, there's subtleties um, in, in the intervention, depending on the person's history. Yes, of course. And do you think that for the person who's dealing with depression and anxiety, many of them feel a lot of guilt around that. I mean, I know that I do when I do have dips in depression or anxiety, I, I do feel quite guilty that my partner has to be around that. Um, and I think that especially, I, I remember before we were together because I was so acutely aware of my anxiety and depression issues that I kind of hesitated for us to be together because I didn't want him to, I, <laughs> I almost felt he was quite innocent and I didn't want to destroy that with something as heavy as my life. I don't know, is there a way that we can work through those feelings as individuals? I don't know whether it's becoming more empowered around our condition or whether it's rethinking the way that we we feel that, you know, obviously I felt that I was inflicting some kind of injury on my partner. Is there, yeah, I just wonder if there's a way that we can cope with those feelings. So if you're suffering with pain and a, a particular medical condition, you know, getting as much support for that outside that situation, outside the relationship is really important. Um, uh, so, um, you know, working with the physical manifestations of that pain uh, through other complementary therapies is the one thing I would highly recommend for anybody experiencing <clears throat> a condition like this or any other condition. Because, again, I'm very opinionated in this area, but I believe that most physical uh, physical disabilities or uh, inflictions are uh, they will have an emotional component to it as well. And if it's manifesting through the body, it can be really helpful to work with it through the body um, to, to, to support the body as much as possible. Um, so there are some wonderful alternative therapies out there, as you may know, uh, that um, so you don't have to get uh, your cognitive executive brain on board to deal with it. You can deal with it from a physical perspective. Um, so there's some probably trauma or stress that's held in the body that needs support. And, uh, so getting that support both, uh, physically and emotionally outside the relationship is really important. Being able to talk about it from that perspective with your partner, as I was describing the partner saying, well, my mom had depression. So this is what's triggered me. You could say, uh, you know, my stress manifests itself in this way, or this is a stress from my past. And I, um, I experience it like this. So um, I guess there's something in uh, being disabled and uh, yeah, feeling guilty that, that manifests for you. Um, and that will have a history to it as well. And that would be interesting to delve into that history. I, I mean, I'm very acutely aware of my history and I feel that sometimes I, where I'm 31 now, sometimes I feel like when I reference back to it I'm like well I I know I feel like this because of this I've I'm like well when I'm being uncompassionate to myself I'm like well when are you going to get over that like how long are you going to keep referring to that that thing and 
you know, even now with the sense of you feel guilty, I could al- I could already come up with so many different scenarios that make sense, especially when I was 17, I was in a car accident and I broke my back and lots of other quite significant breaks and injuries. So I was in hospital for quite a long time and my my mum had to take time off work to come in and make sure that, you know, just to, to keep me company. So that that was probably like quite, there was probably quite a lot of guilt around that, especially just like, you know, you get different, you get different like comments, people project in different ways, but a family member said, oh, you know, make sure you give your mum compensation money because she's essentially like worked to look after you. Just those kind of things that, you know, make you, yeah, just so, but I, I wouldn't. So- So there it is, you know, at the risk of doing therapy with you on your podcast. That's fine. (laughs) Everyone knows everything. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah. that is a massive, significant, damaging effect of just one sentence um, for somebody in a vulnerable situation that could then perpetuate the pain because you're taking on not only the uh the huge trauma to your body physically but now also this mental and emotional uh responsibility you have to take on to look after the adult you're the child you'd be look you're looked after by the adult that's the way it is this uh person who I'm getting all vitriolic. The person <laughs> who <laughs> who said that to you obviously has issues of their own um that um they're making you responsible for it. it was never your responsibility that was never your role to to take on that crazy crazy talk yeah that's really funny because it 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 that that sentence really really stayed stayed with me um yeah and I've always definitely like I ended up using that money for starting my kind of career and my business and I always felt guilty that I didn't give that to my mum so it's like, yeah, that's just quite interesting that you said that. Back, like, obviously back to the, the question. So you were saying that reflecting back to that person explaining, you know, this is probably to do with my past. Um, and is there, would you suggest any other methods or would you kind of start there? I think gaining this deeper understanding is really important. I am a big advocate of emotional intelligence and that this should be taught to people from a young age that is a terrible uh, uh, missing element of the education of people in in our society. I so Um, agree. Yeah. And so if we had some of these skills in addition to reading and writing, how much better off would we be? It just is immeasurable, uh, the impact that that could have. Um, and of course, I think the world is moving in that way slowly but surely. But um, yeah, we need we need to educate ourselves. Essentially, um, we're not taught what we need to know about ourselves and about emotions and about communication. Um, and without that, you know, yeah, you're starting just like driving a car without ever having a lesson. Mm. Is there? Um, I mean, it's a similar question as before, but if you were not from a a couple's perspective, but if someone wanted to kind of do this work and understand their past and, you know, as you said, like develop some emotional intelligence, do you have any resources that you would recommend on that kind of work? Um, yeah, I mean, there's, there's there's like a bazillion (laughs) uh, books out there (laughs) on, on this. Um, again, I think starting with the Gottman's is a good place. 
Um, uh, the, um, you know, there's stuff on attachment theory, there's stuff on, uh, kind of nonviolent communication. There's just, I mean, I'm, I'm picking out a few things that just show the range of information out there. It's where it, it start with what appeals to you, essentially, you know, um, go with the area that, um, resonates with you. So if, if it's the communication you want to learn about, then Google that. Um, I mean, there's so much online as well. It just medium digest. That's a fantastic resource. I don't know if you know that. No, I've never heard of it. It's an online magazine. Um, you can tailor it to your likes and dislikes. So you go in and you choose the areas that you're interested in. And of course it sends you stuff based on that. And, um, so yeah, you can pick out relationships, you can pick out communication, um, you can pick out pain, and then it will just send you articles um, related to that. Then can they, they recommend books, they have their own uh, blogs, people who write on these, they have their own businesses. Uh, so there's lots and lots of resources as a result of that. But um, you get, I think, three articles a month for free, and after that, if you want to get more uh, unlimited access, this is like five quid a month. So, okay, that's great. I'll definitely put that in the show notes. I have noticed a pattern, which obviously I only know a certain amount of people. So this isn't, yeah, this, this isn't fact, but I have noticed that I know many people with endometriosis who have found themselves in unhealthy relationships and quite abusive relationships, including myself. I'm, I'm safe now. I'm not in one anymore. Um, mm-hmm. And I think that it can be very difficult to deal with the reality of um, an unhealthy relationship when you're living with a chronic illness. Either there's kind of a sense of denial and not kind of picking up on it for a while, or there's that feeling that you are already so kind of exhausted by your condition that the idea of trying to work your way out of a relationship where maybe you're being threatened to, like, if if you were to leave, you know, your your life would be at danger or they were, you know, threatening suicide, whatever it may be, though both of those scenarios I've been through, then if you're already dealing with ill health, it's so difficult to manage that. And on top of that, I also feel like we're not actually, like you said, we're not we're not really given an, an emotional education. And even though the curriculum is changing and they're going to be bringing in healthy relationships as from next year, from my understanding, I don't think they really, they certainly didn't cover that at, my, at school for me. So, and I know that you focus on that quite a lot. So I don't know if the question I'm asking is the right one, but what I would be interested in is what is kind of, what could you regard as a healthy relationship and what are the signs of an unhealthy one? Because I think it can be blurred for a really long time. I remember I didn't look at my relationship as being unhealthy because I was like, well, he's never, he's never slapped me. He's never punched me, but yet he'd done other physical things. So until, until I had that slap, I didn't see it as unhealthy. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, probably your idea of a healthy relationship was skewed from your history in some ways. Um, I'm not saying that your parents abused you physically or otherwise, but um, you may be in an, an attitude you have towards yourself that you're not worth uh, more somehow. <clears throat> um, so I would certainly describe a healthy relationship as one where both parties can work through uh, uh, conflict to have those skills to be able to tolerate discomfort 
um, and stay in communication um, is a, a very clear sign of, of health. Um, and, uh, and again, yeah, some of us are perfectly capable of it. We just never learned it or understood that that's what we need to do. Uh, again, the Gottmans have a very um, clear program about what's healthy and what's unhealthy in terms of relationship. And it talks about, they talk about uh, four horsemen of the apocalypse, which are four indicators of a relationship that will fail um, if those particular four horsemen are used to a great extent. And I can't remember them all the top my head, but some things like stonewalling. So if you just stonewall your partner and you do that on a regular basis, that would be a strong indicator that that relationship will fail. It's not healthy enough. It's got too much of the, this negative quality in it. Stonewalling as in like silence, not silence. Yeah. Blanking partner. Yeah. Not speaking. Mm -hmm. So, um, yeah, being very critical and judgmental, that would be another one. I imagine, uh, again, I can't remember them off the top of my head. Uh, I have just thought of another book on communication and intimacy, though, and that is called Real, and it's by um, Dwayne and Catherine O'Kane. Uh, they run an organization called Clear Mind, and they do absolutely wonderful work on connection and communication, um, brilliant workshops. Um, uh, it's a great book that they've written. Uh, so that's a very another very good resource on uh how really how how to function healthily in a relationship or how to learn the skills to function healthily uh, or function well in a relationship i don't think healthily is a word actually <laughs> i feel like i've heard it around though i don't know if it's a word but i no, feel like people okay. say it quite a lot yeah <laughs> okay um so so yeah it's um, can be learned as well. You know, you can enter into something that's not constructive, but if you both are willing to go, uh, let's fix this, it, you know, you can. And maybe I'm not really speaking on behalf of my audience. I'm not sure, but um, my current relationship, we don't, we don't really argue or, or shout. But this abusive relationship, it, both of us would scream. So where's that? You earlier you were saying that we are kind of taught to believe that conflict is a bad thing. So where's that line between something being a normal amount of conflict and then when does it become unhealthy? When when do we recognise that, okay, this is a heated conversation and when is it damaging? Because I've had friends who said say to me, oh, arguments are fine. They're, you know, like, but there's different types of arguments. And I don't think I'm clear myself, really. Mm. Yeah. Well, again... Different uh, strokes for different folks. Some people, they say you both come from a Mediterranean background. You're used to a lot of fire. You're used to a lot of shouting and yelling. It's not going to necessarily be as confrontational if, unless you have, say, uh, as it would be if you have somebody from a Mediterranean culture with an English person and their tight upper lipness, and you get the two of them together, and you've got the Italian shouting their head off, and the, the English person <laughs> going, "Oh my God, <laughs> oh, yeah, this is yeah. bad," and the Italian person going, "No, this is normal." So we all have different kind of measure of that and a different level of tolerance for that. And of course, there's a way that those sort of behaviors can spill over where it's not constructive for anybody, regardless of your culture. Um, 
and sometimes relationships get stuck in a fiery piece because they haven't learned the skills to undo that. They, again, as we've talked about before, the divorce rate is so high because people go, oh, this is wrong. We shouldn't be here. We shouldn't be doing this. I'm better than you. You're, I deserve more. You're not good enough. Um, this relationship has failed. And they end. They never, ever stop to look at what went wrong, how to fix it, um, you know, how, how after many 10, 20 years, things have got to this explosive point because of all the unaddressed issues that then have come to a head at one moment. Um, yeah, because things get really fiery and tense, it doesn't necessarily mean <clears throat> it's a, a destructive relationship. It may just mean that, or it may mean that you, you don't fit. It, it, it just really depends. Um, of course, there are certain behaviors that whether it's a relationship that can survive the conflict or not, you need to take time out from it so that it doesn't escalate into something that's physically, mentally, emotionally um, too damaging to the other person. Mm. So it's, if a relationship does hit <clears throat> a point that um, is escalating, it can be absolutely valid to take a bit of time out to cool down. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, so I'm, yeah, I'm aware of the time. Are you, could you ask, answer one last question or do you need to sure. shoot up? Yeah. Okay. No, this is just, yeah, the kind of one that I want to wrap up on. Um, I get a lot of questions about from people asking me how to tell their partner that they have endometriosis and I've never really had that issue. So offering that advice to have such a vulnerable conversation, I, I can't really offer that advice. And um, I think what people are scared of is firstly, they feel very vulnerable and they're worried about how the partner will react. Do you have any tips or suggestions on how to have that kind of conversation in a way that makes them feel safe? Well, again, as a general guess, I would say that that person is frightened of saying something for fear of rejection, or being judged and criticized. And so, uh, I would, again, I can only offer this in a general sense, but generally, I would say, if you can't, it, it can be very difficult to take to take this step and to be vulnerable and, and, and say things about yourself that you think aren't necessarily great, um, or might have uh, come with a big package. Um, but if we don't do that, who are we going to be? Um, and if that person can't meet us in that place of being of us being fully who we are, then, um, you know, in that moment, obviously, uh, well, actually Alan DeBotton does a great talk on how we should never accept anybody fully for who they are, which is very funny. And I totally agree. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> if you're going to hold something about yourself, like this is personal and that other person doesn't show any inclination of being able to, uh, cope with that, then move on, you know? you are not going to find that out by staying in the relationship and not saying it or, or you'll find it out, but it might be a more painful route. So I would say that, you know, if you feel worried, you're going to be rejected or judged. Um, just know that, know that when you say it and see how that person copes with you as a result of you taking that risk and assess the situation based on that or, over a period of time. We often say in therapy, or I say in therapy, <laughs> um, <clears throat> once can be a pattern. 
So if, say, this person um, is frightened of saying they have endometriosis, but they say it, and that person criticizes them for it, if that were me, I'd be like, hmm, interesting. Okay, so that's interesting information. Mm, yeah. <laughs> because if they're going to respond to me like this, is this just because I've triggered something from their history? Or is it this who this person is? And that would be then something to keep in mind as you go forward. Yeah, definitely. Thank you, Mel, so much for coming on. I would, yeah, I'd love to have you on in a future season to discuss intimacy. And I feel that there's going to be more questions arising from my audience as a result of this conversation. So, um, yeah, it would be brilliant to have you on another time. Um, and yeah, thank you so much for coming on and spending some time to chat about this. You're welcome. It's been a pleasure speaking to you. Really happy to uh, answer any uh, Q&As uh, if you want to do things that way at any point. Yeah, that would be brilliant. Thank you so much. I hope you have a great day. Yeah, and you. All the best. Bye. Bye. So that's it. Thank you so much for listening. If you want to find out more about what I do or read more on endometriosis and living well with it, um, you can head to my Instagram page, which is this underscore endolife. Um, you can head to my website, which is www.thisendolife.com. And you can also get um, a free guide to managing endometriosis naturally on my website. Um, I've put the link in my show notes. It's a beginner's guide to getting started and all of the areas that I um, have worked on to help reduce my endometriosis symptoms and pain and live well with endometriosis. As always, if you like this show, please rate, review and or subscribe. It really, truly does help others to hear the podcast and hopefully will help them to live better with endometriosis. This episode was produced by The Pod Farm. Whether you're an established podcaster or just getting started, visit thepodfarm.com to see how they can help you go from an idea to a finished show that's ready to be heard by the world. Music.